Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the wonderful John Quinn. John is the founder and chairman of Quinn Emanuel. The firm founded in 1986 has been described as a global litigation powerhouse by the Wall Street Journal and the second most profitable law firm in the world by the American lawyer. John is a legal titan and known litigation genius, is ranked band one by Chambers USA for general commercial and trial litigation in California and nationwide. He is one of the top trial lawyers in the world. Awarded California Attorney of the Year 2009, John is twice named Transatlantic Law Firm Leader of the Year. He served as General Counsel to the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences for 33 years, establishing copyright protection over the famous Oscar statuette. In 2016, he opened the Museum of the Broken Relationships as the co-founder of Kosushi, the one and only Michelin star sushi restaurant in Los Angeles. Wow. So a very, very warm welcome, John. Rob, I don't know. Was that me? That's so over the top. <laughs> it's absolutely it's you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Before we dive into all of your wisdom and experiences to date, we do have a cheeky icebreaker question here on Uh-oh. the Legally Speaking podcast, Uh-oh. which is, <laughs> okay, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality if you've seen it? Wow, I haven't seen it. I mean, is it any good? I, I, I honestly haven't seen this. I actually, honestly have not seen this show. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, based on that, you, you can give it a zero because it would be unfair of you to give it any other if you haven't seen it. And let's move swiftly on. Yeah, I, I'm sorry I haven't. No worries. You've been busy being very successful and carving out a wonderful career, which is what we're talking about today. So, John, would you mind just telling our listeners a bit about your, your background and your upbringing firstly? Well, I mean, I... You know, I'm originally from uh, Utah, a small town called Bountiful, just halfway between Salt Lake City and Ogden. And I graduated from high school there when I was 18 years old, went to college in southern Utah at what's now called Claremont McKenna College, one of the Claremont colleges about 30 miles east of L.A. And then I went to law school back at Harvard Law School, had my first job in New York at Crevasse, Wayne & Moore. I was there for about two and a half years, moved to L.A., bounced around a little bit before finally got it right and started uh, Quinn Emanuel, January 1, 1986. And 1986 is also an amazing year because it was the year I was born, John. Just oh, put yeah. It on there. Yeah, great things, great things happened great in things. 80s staff. In 80s. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's uh, break it down a little bit and unpack it. So you studied at Harvard. When did your interest in litigation begin? Well, I think I was always interested in it. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm somebody who's, I'm kind of verbal. I, I, I like to talk. I like to argue. I like to write. So, and I like competition. And, in, and one way of looking at litigation is it's a, a, it's a competition in some ways. You have an adversary. And at, at the end of the day, there can be a winner and there can be a loser. So it's a bit like a sport. And I like that. But actually, I started, I started at the Cravath firm doing uh, corporate deal work 
at the time I joined Cravath, they really they really needed associates in the corporate area, the transactional area. So I let myself be talked into doing that. Although you know that had some good consequences, and that I think I learned merger and acquisition agreements, SEC filings, and all kinds of deal documents in a way that many litigators never do. But it was a bit of a detour, and you know it came home to me that look, this wasn't my really wasn't my thing, and that I wanted to do litigation. And after two years, that's all I've been doing. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, Quinn Emanuel founded in 1986, I believe with three other lawyers in LA. And the firm now has around 29 offices, four continents, 11 countries, over 900 lawyers. What was your initial plan? And how did you plan to build and grow your law firm? Well, we now have 30 offices. Uh, we just Our newest office is in Berlin. We have five offices now in Germany, Heritage of the Holy Roman Empire, very decentralized economy and didn't become the United Country until late uh, 19th century. So that's kind of how you have to do things in Germany. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> but the plan, <laughs> what was the, in- the plan, no, I mean the plan, <laughs> the initial Rob, plan, yeah. The initial plan was not to starve. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. And keep the wolf from the door and food on the table. So that was the mindset. That was, we really were trying to, you know, stay busy. We were a small, you know, four young lawyers in downtown Los Angeles without social connections or business industry connections. And the challenge really was, how are we, how are we going to stay busy? And, and you know, there was no, no idea of some kind of vision, like we're going to be an international law firm at, you know, I, I would have been, when we started the firm, if you had told me we would have been 25 lawyers in 20 years, I would have been amazed. Yeah, well, obviously through, no doubt, a lot of hard work and, and building up a, a stellar reputation, it has to be said. And you touched on it there, but we'd just love to dig a little bit deeper around the biggest challenges. Because as you say, it's it's phenomenal where Quinn Emanuel um, sits today and what you've achieved and the firm's achieved. But there would have been challenges along the way. You touched on perhaps getting, you know, just getting some initial clients, getting some initial work but you know as you sort of grew and were building out what were some of your other challenges again maybe trying to inspire other people who think well could i create a quinn emmanuel myself what would you say other challenge i mean look there are two perennial challenges and one is attracting quality work getting opportunities to get in front of clients and persuading clients to give you the opportunity and that's a different a different situation at different stages of your development when we first started out it was almost anything any kind of work and then of course you know you get you get some assignments you get some good results you develop some relationships and you try to move up the value chain and so now we're competing for the most important cases in the u.s or the world that matter but it's it all comes down to one getting the opportunity how do you get those opportunities and two attracting talent because really all law firms have the only assets law firms have speak really to speak of are the talent of the lawyers in the firm i mean you don't have other assets we you know even though you, you have an it system that's all lease you, you we used to say you had some premises some real estate that was all leased and now query how much of that you need they're really it comes down to those two things the opportunities and then talent to execute on those opportunities. And I'm so pleased that you, you you talked about talent because it's so true. And I mean, I've been in the talent world for 15 years, supporting law firms with with acquiring and, and retaining people. And it is so important. You know, people really do make your, your, your firm. And obviously, you've been very successful in acquiring 
and you know retaining and inspiring exceptional talent to go on to have achieved what you have today as one of the largest law firms in the world devoted to business litigation and arbitration can you explain why you chose to focus particularly around litigation and perhaps not follow the route of some of the bigger firms that tend to do a bit of everything well when we started out there were four of us and we were litigators we didn't have a deal lawyer and as i said our focus really was staying busy and I don't know that we ever really thought about the, it never got to the point where we thought about, well, we should have other practice areas that we should have deal lawyers or tax lawyers. Because as we started to have some success and grew, it became apparent to us that this idea of focusing on one discipline in the business legal world, and that's to say disputes for litigation, arbitration, government facing types of regulatory white collar problems, was actually pretty powerful. And it was, it was powerful in two ways, Rob. First, in terms of our message to the business and legal community, it was a very simple message. We're not trying to be all things, all people. We're, our message is we do one thing, and we're really good at that. See, I think that all the, you know, the so full service firms, as they, they're sometimes referred to, that have all these different departments, they're pre, the way they present themselves to the business and legal community is all pretty much the same, right? I mean, they're, you know, we have a great M&A practice, we have a great capital markets practice, we have great litigators, tax lawyers, trust in the state, you know, you name it. We're great at all these things. We have a law. But they all say that. And so how do you, in that world, how do you distinguish yourself? What's the discriminator? I think it's harder to do that if you're a full-service firm. For us, our business model terms us. Our mess is very simple. And then the other thing that I would say is that I think it's also a force for everybody to be doing the same type of work, although it might trust work, securities work, patent litigation, whatever. Those are all different disciplines. But for everybody to be doing disputes work is a great force for cohesiveness within the firm because the law, you know, the law practice has gotten so specialized now, has been for some time, that I think that you have partners and, you know, deal lawyers and litigators and other kinds of litigators that go through life together as partners and on a very profound level don't really understand what their partners do. And that creates, you know, all kinds of potential for dynamics. So I think, I think sticking to one area has been great for us. And those are the reasons. Why? And I, that's so much wisdom you've just shared there. And it brings back two two quotes that my mentors have told me over the years. And one is quite a simplistic one of always be inch wide, but mile deep and understanding your market that you're serving and really be the, the top of mind. And the second is the famous Bruce Lee quote where he says, I fear not the man who's practiced 1000 kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 1000 times. And I think that just mirrors exactly what you're saying there in terms of like really that. understanding. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's a really good quote, and it's, um, it's really been imprinted in my head when you're looking to niche out. So, folks, if you're listening to this recording, rewind and re-listen to what John was educating you on there about really understanding where you want to focus and around client acquisition, and you'll be hugely successful. So we also touched on the magic number 30. You mentioned you've been into Berlin, most recent, but you also recently expanded, I believe, into Saudi Arabia to capitalize on Vision 2030. So how do you ensure that the firm continues to evolve on this worldwide scale that you are you are ultimately creating? You know, we've never had like a plan. I know these, you know, many large firms, uh, including especially uh, British Magic Circle firms, are great at having these plans in five years, this is what we want to do in 10 years, and that sort of thing. We've never had a plan. We've always been opportunistic. So eyes open to opportunities, whether it's the talent or market or practice areas. And that's what we've always done. And I think that's what we'll continue to be. 
I mean, look, the world is a, is a big place. The market for litigation services, I've seen estimates that it's like $200 billion globally. We only have a tiny, dinky fraction of that. So there's a lot of room for growth. And so I just think we have to we have our eyes open for opportunities wherever it might be. You know, the next great lawyer in New York, or, you know, should we have an office in Tel Aviv or Taipei or, you know, name the world city where we aren't yet, Singapore. We don't have to do any of those things. And it will, will whether we do or not, really will be the question about what is the talent that's available. And so, I mean, we have a saying that we should always know who the best litigators are in any big city in the world. We should always know who they are because you never know. I mean, we could have clients that need help there and maybe an important contact and a relationship. And then sometimes those relationships evolve to the conversation of, you know, should we join forces? Should we be the, you know, should you join our firm? I'm loving this conversation. There's so much wisdom that you're you're sharing and just bringing out my thoughts and through my journey in terms of, you know, contacts are good, but relationships play a pay and what you've said there about knowing who they are and doubling down on those relationships and nurturing and fostering them. I love your curiosity, your growth mindset. So not only a wonderful lawyer, but that entrepreneurial sort of curiosity. And, you know, your thoughts maybe I heard the other day, you know, collaboration is domination. And so many people worried about competition where reality is if your products and services are good enough there'll be enough for you to go around so you absolutely love what you shared there and i guess we have to talk about i'm probably a little bit bored of talking about the topic because i'm in the talent space day to day but we need to ask you the question john because we have gone through a pandemic many law firms have now adopted a work from home or work from anywhere policy what is your opinion should lawyers be allowed to work remotely or be in the office yeah you're right it's a super boring topic <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, we, we have, we made an announcement sometime six months, maybe it's more ago, that we're indefinitely work from anywhere. Those who want to come in the office should come in the office and we should have a, an attractive office experience for those who want to be in the office. And that means, you know, look, nobody wants to, there are people who want to be in the office, but it's not going to be great. They go to the office and they're the only person on their floor. So this involves making it attractive to be there so that you have a, a nucleus of people in the office. And in some places that'll mean giving up office space, which by the way, saves money. <laughs> in LA, we've given up three floors. In San Francisco, we've given up a floor. Um, it's very much, you know, city by city, what the culture is of people coming in or not coming in. But we, there should be an opportunity to work in the office. A lot of people don't want to be home alone or, you know, they, they want that environment. But it should also be possible for people who, you know, want to work remotely from some, you know, beach somewhere or Maybe they're living in Boise, Idaho, or Park City, Utah. We have, by the way, three partners who during the pandemic moved to Park City, Utah, and I don't know if they're leaving or not, wow. or wherever. And by the way, I mean, we think this is a great recruiting opportunity for us because there can be some great lawyers in you know cities where we don't have physical offices who we think would be great additions to the firm. And this policy makes it possible for us to, to recruit them and give them, you know, give us a chance to work together. So that's about all I have to say about that, that boring. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's great. And I love how you, you, you offer the blend of the blend of both. Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? 
Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all, something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. But maybe stepping away from from Quinn Emanuel just for a for a minute, because I did mention in the intro, you know, you were also general counsel to the Academy of Motion, Picture Arts and Sciences uh, Sciences for thirty three years. So, can you explain more to our listeners about what that role involved and the type of work you were getting up to there? Well, the Academy of Motion, Picture Arts and Sciences is a wonderful organization that's best known as putting on the Oscars show where the Achievements in motion pictures are awarded every year, and it's a show that's ultimately seen by about a billion people. But the Academy does many other things. It supports film festivals. It supports film preservation. It supports student films. It does a lot of things to promote the art and the sciences of motion pictures. And now, as of, I'm going to say a year ago, it finally has a museum for motion nice. pictures in Los Angeles. You know, people come from all over the world to LA and they want to see Hollywood. They want to learn about Hollywood and the history of film. And they go to Hollywood and they found out this tawdry boulevard, you know, with uh, sketchy people. And there's no place that you could go and learn about the history of film and the history of Hollywood and motion picture production, which is kind of an amazing fact. It's amazing that it was never done before, but the Academy has finally opened a museum. It was over, a, I think, a $400 million project. It took about a decade. And there's a wonderful museum that you can go to. And that's, was, that was, it's a, found, a separate foundation, but it was funded and overseen by the Academy. I'd encourage anybody who has an interest in film or visiting Los Angeles and wondering what are the best things to do, I'd encourage them to go to the, the Museum of Motion Pictures. Well, when I'm over, John, I'm definitely going to ensure they do that. I'm well overdue a US trip with all of this pandemic. So uh, when I'm there, I'll definitely make sure I check it out and also reach out. So, you know, John, documented as a legal legend, you know, litigation star, looking back at your career, undoubtedly there's a number of notable cases. And I'm not going to pin you down to, to your favorite one. By all means, you're welcome to share. Um, but I would like to ask the question of your back to ground zero right now you only have one tool in your top toolbox what is that one skill 
that one tool that you could not lose that would enable you to be as fierce, successful, competitive lawyer. And I appreciate there'll be a combination of skills, but what's that one tool that you would not want to lose that's enabled your success? That's easy. Grit. G-R-I-T. Grit. There are no Einsteins in the legal world. No matter what people tell you, the news stories you read about, you know, charismatic trial lawyers and geniuses, it's, it's mostly... Look, practicing law at the highest level is a labor-intensive, time-intensive exercise. There are no shortcuts. You have to have grit. You have to have that fire in the belly and that thirst for winning. And I guess that segues quite nicely on because um, to talk a bit more about some of the clients. So, you know, Law Dragon 500 describes you as one of the nation's most fearless litigators, having litigated for huge companies, Samsung, Nestle, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And you obviously mentioned grit there, but how have you dealt with the pressure of some of those cases on top of having that, that grit? Anything else that you've done or strategically that you, um, you could share? Pressure is a thing. It's a damn good question. One thing, I've, as I've gotten older, I've been able to handle it better. When I was young, I remember my first jury trial when we were involved in jury selection. You actually talk to the jurors, and you're, you know, you're trying to suss out what people think and whether they might be good for your case or not so good. And my partner told me I was shaking like a leaf. <laughs> and I don't think I, I do that anymore, but it's, it's extremely stressful. You know, that some people say, I, I, I've read that the thing that people fear the most is public speaking, many people. Because getting up in front of people and speaking is a hard thing to do. I would say the single best thing for me is getting exercise and working out. That's one thing that always repays. You know, I, I will... You know, before a court day, if I possibly can, get up in the morning and run or swim, do something, do that at the end of the day and try to make sure that I get some exercise every single day. But, you know, obviously it's good for your health, makes you feel good physically, makes you feel good mentally, and kind of eliminates some amount of that anxiety. Doesn't go away altogether, but it helps. I love that. And again, there's so many great nuggets there. I remember the Billie Jean King quote where, you know, pressure is a privilege, but also I remember somebody else telling me about health and it's so important. You know, if you don't make time for your health now, then you're sure as hell going to have to make time for your health in your later years because it's going to catch up on you. So I think, again, so, so true what, what you share in terms of, yeah, everyone's busy, everyone's got pressure, but you've got to make sure that you look after yourself because you can't pour from a from an empty cup. And John, not only do you stay as one of these high profile legal phenomenons, but you're also embracing this new digital world that we're in and community and getting out there. And I'm referencing, obviously, you having your own YouTube channel, but you've also got your own podcast, which is super successful, Law Disrupted. So what is your podcast all about? What are the types of guests you have on the show? Tell us more. Wow. I really enjoy doing the, the podcast. I like interviewing and you know, I have people on who are uh, who interest me, and we try to stay on topic, on theme, about the law, cutting edge developments, things that are really interesting. Early on, I did one on, you know, legal issues as they pertain to NFTs. Recently, did one in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court decision on gun control. What's the status of gun control now? We did one on what are the legal challenges on automated driving? Why is this taking so long? What are the issues there? human rights, 
shortly going to be doing one with you know the uh, Camille Vasquez, the uh, uh, attorney for Johnny yes. Depp in that case, who's a really interesting person. So the idea is not to bore, have interesting people, and have a have a discussion that I would like doing, and and that's how I look at it: a discussion, a conversation that I enjoy. It just happens to be recorded and shared. I love your passion and um, a shared passion we have for disruption because I like you. I've been in the legal recruiting talent space and created our legally speaking podcast to disrupt to have a point of difference. And you know, we talking of crypto and NFTs, we did an NFT drop, a token gated event connected to our show where we had Carol Bassman from Tiger King come in. We're the first show to have our own crypto creator community coin connected wow. to because you've got to push, you've got to push That's the great. needle, and you've got you've got to find ways to be interesting inspire and educate and so coming back to some of the the things i want to stick to because i'm actually after this recording jumping onto a web3 event with some other lawyers because this is where technology is going folks but you mentioned you discuss nfts litigation finance crypto and more you know what developments can we expect to see in america us law in regards to the likes of nfts and cryptos and i know we can go down a rabbit hole here but sort of your own sort of viewpoints um on that specifically well, we're going to see some more regulation, which I think is a good thing, by the way. I think it'll be good for the marketplace. There's been too much chaos, and there is a need for, for some regulation. Whether it's, We need some, some clarification on whether NFTs and various crypto projects are securities, have to be registered. That's a fundamental question, which the SEC hasn't really given a lot of guidance, kind of regulation by bringing enforcement actions, and you try to, you know, read... To, you know, connect the dots from the different cases that the SEC brings. So what are they thinking? We're definitely going to have some more uh, regulation on compliance issues. Know your customer, anti-money laundering, you know, the types of regulation that you see for conventional financial institutions. There's a need for that. And, and I think the industry should not look at these as bad things at all. I mean, it, it will boost the confidence in the system and make it more, make it more mainstream. And we'll get greater certainty around there'll be more developments and case law on the status of decentralized autonomous organizations, what are the potential liabilities of all the token holders, the kind of open questions, the applicability of soft uh, intellectual property concepts, trademarks, copyrights, and the like to NFTs. We're definitely going to see some more uh, developments in that area. So those are the things that come to mind, Rob. And that super excites me. I mean, I was in the um, the penthouse metaverse suite of one of my friends, Mitch Jackson, um, California litigation of the year, I think 2003. And he had Gary Vee from, you know, social media guru sitting in his penthouse doing a live, you know, podcast recording in the metaverse. And I can see law firms, you know, eventually everyone's going to have a virtual space or offering these services. You know, it's just amazing how these technologies move forward. And you're obviously right at the forefront of that. And in a Forbes article, code is law during the age of blockchain, you outline the choice about code and law will be a choice about value. So do you mind explaining a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, there is this concept of the code is law, that if you are participating in a project, whether it's a crypto project, token project of any kind, that the, you know, your rights and obligations are determined, are embedded in the code. And you know, that, the code answers all questions. And I think that's, so that's sort of the, the strong view, the hard view of that. But I think we've seen that, you know, that doesn't necessarily, there are social values of different kinds 
that ultimately need to be taken into account. You know, there, there is this, you remember that there was the, um, you know, the Ethereum, you know, where there was the fork, when there was a hack on Ethereum early on. And, you know, hack is a loaded term. I mean, the people, if code is law, that's not a hack, right? It's the code permitted what that person did. You could, you could empty the account. And so by that view, code is law, which that person did is totally legit. And that caused a, a real conversation in the Ethereum community. And there was a fork between Ethereum Classic, and what we now know as uh, Ethereum, where uh, you know, it was kind of a decision point. Are we gonna accept this idea that because this person could do this, that was perfectly legitimate? And, and those with the fork, the new Ethereum, that was, you know, that was blocked or there was a change in the code. Well, those believe that no that that that's not okay if you do that and we're seeing that in cases now where there's a case in canada where there was a again i'll use the pejorative not a hacker the code permitted me to do what i did that's basically his defense in the case you know i i, I was a participant in this project and i played by the project's rules and i got rich by the project's rules so it's not my don't blame me <laughs> and it's great that because you also touch on that values point connected to that as well, um, as well as sort of the, you know, the way you look at that. And it's great that you touched on DAOs. We don't have a great amount of time to talk about DAOs, but folks, I would strongly encourage you to look at them. I personally am a big believer in DAOs and think there's a future there for them, or there's a lot of legal questions and concerns around that. And just with the Ethereum point, I'm sure there are lots of Solana fans and Polygon fans at that time, probably quite happy um, with all the competition that's going on in that space. But let's park crypto and the future as excited as I am about that space and very much in it um you are an avid hiker mountain climber you've also completed an ironman triathlon world champion in hawaii which just sounds incredibly hot can you tell us how you did manage to balance the work with the leisure time you mentioned it's important to you health but people will be listening to this looking at your credentials what you've achieved and just, how is that possible so how did you actually strike the right balance to enable you to do all those things? i don't know if i did strike the right balance I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate your honesty. Well, looking back, looking back, what would you have changed? If you asked my wife, she would say most of the time, I'm not striking the right balance. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. Trying to sleep, trying to get some exercise, you know, and, and being greedy for experience. For me, that's what it came down to. Yeah. Having fun, always... doing, doing what you enjoy. It's always easy to do what you enjoy. I'm, I'm one of those people who say, I've never had a job. At least I haven't had a job since college when I you know, uh, flip pancakes in the, you know, in the student cafeteria. This is not a job. I do what I enjoy. I love it. But I love your curiosity and always openness to learn because obviously you already will have a wealth of knowledge, but there always seems that curiosity and willingness to, to experiment and learn, learn new things. So um, Quinn Emanuel, back to Quinn Emanuel, has been appointed as counsel by the Ministry of Justice Ukraine in respect of their interstate proceedings being bought by Ukraine against the Russian Federation. Can you tell us more about that appointment, if possible? Well, we've represented Ukraine for several years in different matters. We've represented Ukraine against the Russian Federation in commercial matters. And we're very proud that they turned to us for this matter, which is a pro bono engagement in the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. It's being run out of our London office. The two partners running it are Alex Jerby and Julianne Janet Hughes. And it's uh, obviously a, a major undertaking, but one we're, we're very proud to be involved. Absolutely. And we um, 
we absolutely support that here on the the legally speaking podcast and and john it was always going to be impossible to get so much of what you've achieved and what you've done into short such a short time frame that we have today but if before i look to close what advice would you give to those who are interested in pursuing a career in litigation you've obviously talked a lot about grit you've talked a lot about mindset you know, imagine to inspire the next generation of people you would want working, let's say, within Quinn Emanuel. What would you say to them if they are really looking to pursue a career specifically in litigation? Well, I think, you know, I think it's almost like a calling the way I look at it. It's a career that chooses you rather than you choose it. If you are, I, I talked to you about some of the things that I find attractive about litigation. If you're, if, if you're uncomfortable with conflict, if you're not verbally inclined, if, if you're really more of a quant, and if you don't really like competition and you don't like working hard, it's not a career for you. There are other things that you'll enjoy doing, but probably not litigation. But if you enjoy doing those things, then there's enormous opportunity. You know, there's always, there's always going to be disputes as the world changes, as technology changes, the nature of the disputes change. So everything that you see in society plays out in the world of litigation. And we get to be a part of all that. So I think it's, I think it's, a great, it, it, it's a great career. And if you have the opportunity to pursue it, pursue it with passion uh, and diligence, because that's the only way to do it and be successful. And that's such great advice um, before we, we look to close. And it, it's so true. And, you know, making sure you stay informed with the news and where the world is going, because the reality is there's going to be some law connected in and around that. And I'm super excited with this new ways of technologies we've got now and in the future. And there's so much opportunity for folks down the line. So, John, if our listeners, which I'm sure they will, would like to learn more about Quinn Emanuel, your journey or your podcast, what's the best way for them to perhaps get in contact? Feel free to shout out any social media or web links. We'll also share them with this episode for you too. Well, the firm has a, a website at www.quinnemanuel.com. My podcast, Law Disrupted, is at www.law-disrupted.fm. It's available on all major streaming platforms. My own personal website is at www.johnbquinn.com. And I'm also on Twitter at jbqlaw. And my email address is johnquinn at quinnemanuel. Always happy to respond to questions and queries. Well, John, thank you so, so much. Been an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the show. And it seems almost silly that I should say this, wishing you lots of continued success with your career, given how much you've already achieved and what you've done. But I know you every day is sort of you're wanting to, to grow. So um, from all of us on the show, thanks an absolute mission. But for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.